Welcome to Everything is Connected, where we explore the intersections between the world outside us and the worlds within us. I'm your host, Jonathan Blake, and today we kind of come full circle with our program. You might recall our first podcast tackled questions surrounding the value of organized religion in an era of religious extremism and anti-intellectualism. And today we're going to come back to some of these questions, but through a different lens and with a wonderful different guest who's devoted her professional life to religious leadership. The Reverend Dr. Catherine Rhodes Henderson is president of Auburn Seminary. It's a multi-faith leadership development and research institute that, according to their mission statement, equips bold and resilient leaders of faith and moral courage to build communities, bridge divides, pursue justice, and heal the world. Auburn was founded almost 200 years ago by Presbyterians and has become an essential institution in advancing the multi-faith movements for justice. Reverend Henderson is also an author. She's written a book called God's Troublemakers, How Women of Faith Are Changing the World. She's an internationally known speaker and has been featured in many media outlets. Her TEDx talk called Letting God Out of the Box was released earlier this year in February of 2017. She is currently writing a second book called Fighting for the Heart of America, How the Prophets of Our Time Are Bringing Our Nation's Future to Birth. Reverend Henderson also co-founded Face to Face, Faith to Faith, a multi-faith program educating a new generation of young leaders from the U.S. and conflict and post-conflict regions around the world as peacemakers for our global society. Reverend Catherine Henderson, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Can you walk us through the spiritual pathway of your life (laughs) and how it led you to your leadership role today? Sure. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, My father taught Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew in a Presbyterian seminary. So a a little bit of the interfaith uh, was part of my early upbringing. And our next door neighbors were Max and Ruth Goldberg, who had no children of their own. And we shared everything. Um, I went to Shabbat services with them. They sometimes came to church with us. celebrated Christmas, and so there was a wonderful exchange of life, of eating each other's foods, of sharing ritual, and of feeling a spiritual connection and care for each other. So that was a part of of my early upbringing. Um, As many preacher's kids do, who are steeped um, in maybe a little too much religion, Uh, Early on, I had a very profound atheist period in late high school and college. Um, I should back up a little bit before that, though, because um, we had been on sabbatical in Germany when I was nine years old, and uh, two things happened there. The first was that I became introduced to the history of the Holocaust and went to, at this, I was nine, to uh, Dachau, which was a very profound experience. Um, I only recently learned that, which is something I hadn't remembered, my father actually took me. um, But the introduction of that, the experience of extraordinary evil, the capacity of human beings to wreak havoc on individual lives and nations and families and uh, to commit unspeakable acts. Um, That was something that I learned at a very early age. We also lived um, in the apartment rented to us by 
Zabina Leipholz, who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's twin sister. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the Lutheran pastor who had, uh, who had uh, been in this country but felt called to go back to Germany and to uh, fight against Hitler. He participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler and was um, put in a concentration camp and killed for his actions. So the, those were two very powerful shaping exposures. I guess the other early seeds, my family often welcomed uh, Christian missionaries, friends who lived in Arab countries. So we often had missionaries coming back on furlough from places like Lebanon and Iran. And so I was also exposed to the um, culture and stories and life of the broader Arab world. Anyway, left a lot of that behind because I also felt that um, there was too much pew sitting uh, on Sunday mornings, too much internal focus in terms of the church. My parents had also been uh, involved in civil rights um, activities, and I remember as a child going on civil rights marches with them, and then ending up singing uh, hymns in a black church, which seemed very vibrant. So the, the mixture of faith in the streets, that you don't just sit in a pew, but you go out to the streets and act on your faith, um, and then you sing together um, mighty powerful songs. That was, that was very compelling to me. Um, and so I went through a profound atheist period until about my sophomore year of college when I had an experience uh, in a Catholic monastery Vesper service where I asked the priest at the door if I could take communion since I wasn't Catholic. And he said, if you want to, you won't be turned aside. And so that was sort of the road back to my processing and internalizing a faith that I could call my own. Our timelines actually line up very symmetrically. I uh, also went through a, an avowedly atheist period, uh -huh. probably more like post-bar mitzvah, so 14, 15, 16, yeah. 17, went to college and started to reconsider. And it was my sophomore year when I found my calling to the rabbinate as well. And it was also sitting in, actually it was the chapel, Johnson Chapel at my alma mater Amherst College during High Holy Day services. So the chapel is ecumenical, but it's of course purposed for many different faith ceremonies. And that was sort of when I kind of had a sense of clarity about what I was supposed to be doing with my life. Here we are now, and we're going to Fast forward to the present. You've been at Auburn. You've been president of Auburn for eight years, I believe. Mm -hmm. And during that time, the seminary has dramatically shifted its focus toward the training and supporting of faith leaders who work in progressive justice organizations and movements. So I'm curious how you moved a 200-year-old institution in such a bold direction in such a short time frame given that religious institutions, and I know this from my day-to-day -day work, we are not typically known for receptivity to dramatic change. That's so true. We move very slowly, uh, tend to move very slowly. So there were seeds of Auburn's history and seeds of this current moment from the very beginning. So, so it wasn't as if we have undergone a lot of change, but there were seeds there early on. For example, um, Auburn 
trained women early on, educated African Americans early on. We've just discovered through um, archival research, uh, as we turned 200 in 2018, that Auburn Seminary was a site on the Underground Railroad. So there were many seeds of progressive engagement around public issues, um, child labor, for example, and um, and women's rights from, from the very beginning, and issues of race, um, a relationship with the prison that was the closest institutional neighbor to Auburn Seminary, um, and also uh, theologically, Auburn, from the very beginning, fought against the fundamentalisms that threatened to take over that part of the country. And so it took a real stand for openness and tolerance from the very beginning. So changing an institution is a big challenge. And I have an amazing team, which makes all the difference, and an amazing board. And I think that we were ripe for integrating what had been many different kinds of good programs, um, but figuring out how to repurpose all of our work and to use our resources to equip leaders to do the work of justice. You know, all of these issues are interconnected, and we have to figure out how people of faith are going to work together to heal and repair the world. And your approach starts with religious leadership. What's unconventional, at least from the outside looking in, about Auburn is that unlike many traditional seminaries, which is a place where people go to be trained for ministry in any particular denomination or faith, Auburn takes candidates from many different faith Mm -hmm. traditions and trains people, many of whom are already in ministry or the rabbinate or what have you, uh, and trains them in the focused work of Mm -hmm justice, social justice. So let's say I came to Auburn and, you know, I came to you and I said, help me become a better social justice leader. Mm -hmm. Where would that Mm -hmm. conversation start? How does the training actually work? When we moved here in 1939 to New York City, we said, let other seminaries do the usual work of training ministers and we will do the leadership development work that other seminaries aren't necessarily doing. And so a lot of our work is out in the world, in Atlanta, in Little Rock, in the Bay Area and San Francisco, um, you know, across Chicago, across the country. So it's taking theological education out or taking trainings out all across the country and also through social media. Uh, So we do a lot of uh, media training. We believe in the power of more progressive religious folks using media, social media, to get the message out. And the message is that uh, we are called as people of faith and moral courage to do the work of justice to which, you know, God calls us and to work with Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Buddhists, uh, and people of no particular faith tradition to to build this world together. I have found, I wonder if you could comment on this, I have found in the last year and a half, starting with the 2016 election cycle, that social media actually became such a contaminated space Mm -hmm. that my objectives in social media, which basically were to create a space for elevated conversation Mm -hmm. around the pressing issues of our time, I was finding it increasingly difficult to do that because the conversation would be hijacked Mm -hmm. by the most extreme voices. Mm -hmm. 
Are you finding the same thing with the people you're training? Is social media still the tool it once was or seemed to have the capacity to be? I think that social media is here to stay, different forms of it. And I think that we all have to monitor our own health um, and, and resilience around social media. And so what I see people doing is dipping in and out. Um, taking some time off or monitoring your exposure and your engagement with social media. I think, you know, part of what we're doing at Auburn is trying to change the narrative, change the message. I think we're in a moment where a lot of people are feeling despair, confusion, you know, lack of clarity, lack of hope. And so, you know, I think for us as religious leaders, it's really important to be there with podcasts like this. Um, and we're doing a lot of work with video, with short form storytelling, so that, uh, so that people have a different sort of sense of what's possible. And I think it's a very hopeful time, and we need to share that hope, um, including on social media. You know, after the, after the election, I think this is a moment of reckoning where we have to figure out where we're going to stand and who we're going to stand for and the kind of vision that's going to take us forward to, we call it Vision 2050 from a school of prophets. That's the sort of uh, space that we're working in. Vision 2050 being the moment 2050 or before when we're no longer a white majority nation. That's just based on demographic it's prediction. It's just based on demographic predictions. Right. And I think for some people, that's very frightening. Sure. Um, apocalyptic, it's even. Apocalyptic, even. I think that's where a lot of the backlash that we're seeing, although that's nothing new, but the virulence of it, the yeah. violence of it, anti-Semitism. And um, the, I think, permission that the white supremacist movements feel to be out there in the open is also not new, but has not been seen in more than 100 years in this country. And it's, and it's not been normalized right. by folks in power. Your focus, of course, is on justice, but it yeah. almost feels like the work could be overwhelming um, in terms of how to go about it. Do you go about it topically? Um, well, we work, our work is with leaders. So our, the leaders that we work with work on many different kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And so amplifying their voices both through the use of media, learning how to do storytelling, mm. because storytelling is is really stories change hearts and minds, and they bring us they can bring us closer to each other. So Auburn so, is just as willing and equipped, for instance, to train a religious leader whose main cause, let's say, is combating white supremacy, uh, as Auburn is ready to work with somebody who's out there in front on the cause of refugee resettlement, and then minister number three or rabbi number three who wants to talk about um, the ways in which women have constantly throughout our history fought against marginalization, oppression, assault, and whatnot. Yes, and I think that what we're seeing more and more is the interconnection of all of these issues. Uh -huh. These are not separate issues. If you're talking about um, mass incarceration and the warehousing of people at an unprecedented rate and at a rate higher than any other place in, in the developed world. Um, 
And disproportionately and, of and, people of and color, And disproportionately of, of people of color. That is related to deportations and immigration. All of the system is related. Hmm. So I think that more and more the leaders that we work with are seeing how all of these issues are interconnected. It's hard um, to be a single issue minister. It's hard to be it's hard to be a single issue minister. We have to start connecting the dots. I also think that uh, you know one of the ways that empire works is to try to divide people from each other. Sure. To divide the vulnerable, to divide religious minorities, to make us hate each other. And so one of the ways that we fight back is to stay connected and to see that your positioning as a Jew in this country as anti-Semitism is on the rise is deeply connected to your Muslim neighbors who are experiencing, you know, Islamophobia at unprecedented rates, is connected to the immigrant, you know, who is also vulnerable, is connected to the single African-American mother who is trying to feed her children. I mean, all of these pieces are connected, and I think that our religious traditions speak powerfully and deeply. You know, if you think about Isaiah 58, the repairs of the breach text, you know, it talks about, do not hide yourself from your own kin. Mm. And I think that kin is not just the neighbor that you know or the actual person in your own family, but kinfolk are the other people who are vulnerable and, you know, who are uh, God's beloveds. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is a long kind of polarization within scriptural interpretation, whether to read texts that talk about kin, neighbor, family, clansmen as parochial or universal. I mean, even even Leviticus uh, 19, 18, to love one's neighbor as oneself. Yes. In Jewish interpretive texts, you know, the question of, well, who's your neighbor? Yeah. Is it just your fellow Jew? Or does it mean anyone? Uh, I, I always tend to favor the the much more inclusive Absolutely. universalistic approach. I think that that's what certainly the literature and the prophetic literature above right. all had in mind. And it's also interesting you would mention the uh, repair of the breach text from Isaiah 58. That is the prophetic selection for the morning of Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. the holiest day right. of the year on the Jewish calendar, we read that text because it says, is this the fast I have chosen? Mm-hmm. Is is fasting the ritual act of depriving oneself of food mm-hmm. and drink and whatnot on the Day of Atonement? Is this intended just to bow ourselves over like a reed? Is not the fast to unshackle those who are in bondage and right. to provide for those who mm-hmm. are in need. And so that text speaks to, to me as, of course, it guides your work. And the other part of that text is that you you can't really have a relationship with God. That's right. The doorway is not through ritual piety. No, it's through doing the work of justice and taking care of those in need. And I think the way it ends up repairing the breach, then you'll be called repairs of the breach and restores of streets to live in. Mm. Um, repairing breaches and restoring streets, that speaks to me about structural injustice. It's not just my being good to you. That's really looking at the underlying structures the and system systems is what's broken. That, that are right. actually broken. So. Good. I'm going to flag this conversation <laughs> for my preaching next Yom Kippur. I've got many months to marinate with this. Um, so speaking of taking it to the streets, you're sitting here in my office here yeah. at Westchester Reformed Temple, and our congregation, which is turning 65 this spring, 
has a history of pursuing justice, not only from the pulpit, but in the streets. Uh, Rabbi Jack Stern, who led the congregation from 1962 until his retirement in 1991, marched for civil rights in the South, like your family. And my predecessor, our mutual friend, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who now heads the Union for Reform Judaism, that's sort of the parent synagogue arm of the Reform Jewish movement, was an outspoken early advocate for intervention in the Darfur genocide. And over the last year and a half, I've been working with almost 200 volunteers from WRT, our temple, to assist refugees fleeing from war-torn Middle Eastern countries. But as I'm sure you know, almost any such effort will inevitably encounter public resistance. And usually, the charge leveled against us religious leaders who believe that the pursuit of justice is central to the mission of faith is that we are being political or even partisan. So have you encountered this criticism? How do you respond to these charges? And is there any way to move the conversation about religiously motivated justice out of this polarized place where we are constantly opening ourselves up to accusations of playing politics? All of this is very familiar territory. And I think that God hasn't created us as a divided people. Um, I mean, and I'm talking about an individual now. I think that we learn compartmentalization. In other words, I'm my spiritual self here on Sunday morning or at Shabbat service, and I'm my corporate self um, when I go to the office, and I'm my political self when I go and, and vote. I don't think that's how human beings were meant to be. We're all mixed up inside, and so we have to find a way to live authentically and as integrated selves so our ethics, our politics, our resilience as individuals, all, the, all of that is, needs to be integrated. So I don't, know, I don't know how you can be a person of faith without caring deeply about how we organize our shared life together, which is our political life, our cultural life. So, so it all has to be together. I think that those of us in the more progressive religious space have ceded a lot of territory, have given over a lot of territory to religious conservatism. And particularly, you know, I'm speaking as a Christian here, there is a lot that is happening right now in the name of Christianity that has nothing to do with being a Christian. So I think that we need to, uh, to help people live their fullest selves out there in public too. And I'll give you an image here um, for the climate change march that happened several years ago in New York City. Auburn and some friends decided we needed to build an ark, a wooden ark um, on a flatbed truck. Not um, an ark like a place where you keep Torah scrolls for those of my Jewish listeners. That's you right. mean like Noah's ark. That, I mean like Noah's ark. Yeah. yeah, Noah's ark. And there was humor to it. Uh, we call it an ethical spectacle in the lingo. That's great. That's part of what we teach. And so a lot of people wanted to get on and off that ark. Particularly rabbis love to get on the ark. But we had two Im- by two, I hope. Uh, we had imams and rabbis and ministers and priests and kids and Amazing. the indigenous grandmothers. It was the vision of what the realm of God, you know, could look like, should look like. And so we handed out, as, as we started rolling along, uh, packages of animal crackers to the crowds, and they thought that was funny, too. 
and we had a great playlist, great music. Um, but before we got started, there was a group of Muslim folks in a group right next to the ark, and it came time to pray. And so those of us of other religious traditions got off the ark and went over as our Muslim neighbors put their prayer rugs on, mm. I think it was 8th Avenue on the ground. And so we surrounded, circled them to provide a circle of safety so that they could pray in peace. And it was a, you know, it was just a very powerful um, moment for standing for each other and being together, witnessing somebody else's ritual, creating a prayerful space, and expanding the circle of care. Your seminary has the most, I think, extraordinarily instructive byword, which sounds like a paradox on its surface, which is <laughs> trouble the waters, heal the yes. world. But it really is both. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. or, you know, afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. Exactly. It is exactly. often a capsule way of describing what I believe to be the yeah. authentic mission of faith. Yeah. So do you know our colleague, my colleague, Rabbi Menachem Creditor? I don't know. Oh, that. he's an extraordinarily okay. uh, attuned to justice uh-huh. uh, Jewish faith leader. And he posted a message online recently that said, if you think that religion is something you do in the sanctuary and not in the streets, you're doing it wrong. Uh-huh. Signed, every biblical prophet ever. That's right. So we both... Well, including, uh, including Rabbi Heschel. Right, know, modern our, prophets our feet, too. Our, our feet were praying, That's right? That's right. That's how he described There's, participating in the civil rights movement in the South. Yeah. So we both care a lot about biblical prophets as models for today's faith. Are there specific texts, traditions, or people who inspire you and your work? Absolutely. So Auburn, three years ago, um, after many years of cultivating this dream, launched something called the Auburn Senior Fellows. And we think of these people as the modern-day prophets, the prophets of our time, people like the Reverend Dr. William Barber, uh, Rabbi Sharon Browse, uh, who founded an amazing synagogue, Ikar, in L.A., uh, Valerie Kaur, um, a young sick filmmaker and author and speaker whose New Year's Eve talk last year has received over 3 million mm. views on social media, um, where Valerie talked about um, maybe this moment is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. Mm. And this is just our great transition as a society, as a nation. And so, you know, a lot of people were animated by that idea that that there's a birth process. We're in labor now, and this is a birth process. And as Valerie would say, you just breathe and push. Yeah, last time I checked, birth is both messy and usually accompanied by a lot of wailing. That's right. Yeah. Lamentation, right? right? right. Um, as, as well as a lot of joy. And so I, I think we're all listening for the cry, the happy cry or the, mm. or the, um, the birth cry of something being born. Uh, back to prophets, modern day prophets, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III at Trinity UCC, United Church of Christ in Chicago, who is essentially top to bottom greening the community around him on the south side of Chicago. Amazing. So there are prophets among us uh, today 
who are bringing a real word of hope, as well as analyzing the current situation. And then there are everyday folks who have a lot of moral courage and who are standing up, whether they're truth tellers in corporate life and political life, and a lot of young women who are choosing to run for office, who are getting elected. I mean, this is a very exciting time to be alive and a very exciting time to be a person of faith. So here we are, two unabashed progressives sitting in a room together. Where is the place for religious conservatives in the pursuit of justice as you understand it? I think that there are lots of religious conservatives right now who are thinking deeply about where they stand. I mean, progressives are not a monolithic, uniform group, and conservatives aren't either. And so I see, you know, a lot of soul-searching among conservative friends. I was talking with a, a colleague who comes from a very conservative denomination, and in Cleveland, Tennessee, right after the election. And I, I said, so, you know, so what happened to your people here in this election? And he was talking about their fear, their fear that so much has changed in, in this country um, around things like same-sex marriage and African-American and the White House. And his community was wrestling with a lot of perceived fear and wrestling with what it means to be made in the image of God. I mean, his is a largely white evangelical community. You know, Leonard Cohen says there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And so, you know, I think there are cracks in lots of spaces, and it's disruptive, but also that's where the possibility happens. I'll just lift up another colleague, uh, the Reverend Rob Shank. Rob Shank was one of the very prominent um, right-to-life activists, uh, particularly in the 80s, and has led a very conservative lobby group in Washington. And he, through a connection to a friend and an Auburn board member, Abby Disney, um, started thinking about guns and the relationship of, you know, sanctity of life. How can you feel that all life is um, sacred and not care about the lives that are being cut short by gun violence in this country. And so Abby Disney um, made a film called The Armor of Light. Rob Shank was the key protagonist, and it's about the crack <laughs> that's letting the light get in for Rob and for other evangelicals around the issue of guns. I love the possibility for progressives and conservatives to come together over their fault lines around issues, I guess you could call them, of higher theological or moral weight, such as the sanctity of life. That seems to me a principle that we can agree on no matter where we stand sure. on our you know, political or ideological side of the aisle. It seems like if we can find people of faith on both sides, progressive and conservative, who can agree that life is sacred, that people working together can accomplish change, that change is necessary, that we are made in the image of God. These seem to me uh, powerful motivators for cooperative faith work going forward. Absolutely. And my suggestion would be, and, and this is not just for Thanksgiving dinner tables, but pretty much all the time now, 
simply asking the question, what is the world you're dreaming of? That's beautiful. What's the world you're dreaming of? Because I bet there's a lot of shared space there with us and with uh, conservatives across the country. Thank you for inspiring me and our listeners. So Catherine Henderson, this has been so thought-provoking and inspiring. I want to thank you for being my guest today. Great to be here with you, Jonathan. That's it for today's episode. You can listen to every episode of Everything is Connected wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And please check out our website, connectedcast.com, for more information about today's guest and about the episodes we've already recorded. Our title music is Down in the River to Pray, as recorded by the Pete Malinverney Trio. Stay connected, everyone.